Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Hello, everybody. On this podcast, I'd like to welcome uh, Mr. Dan Gilman, who is a lawyer for the FTC, working for the last, I think it's 13 years. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on. Thank you, Mike. Glad to be here. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about your background. I saw that you had a PhD in addition to being an attorney. Uh, what led you to become interested in law and what was your PhD in? Oh, well, it's, it's been a long and winding road, I have to say. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I mean, I had, I suppose, uh, in some sense, I've had an interest in law and in economics for a long time, but that's not what I started out to do. And uh, my PhD is in, in either of those fields. So I went off to grad school as a, a fairly uh, impractical uh, young guy who'd uh, really liked some of his mathematics and, and philosophy work and got nudged to do some more. And so I went to study mathematical logic and foundations of mathematics in Chicago and sort of moved over in philosophy of science and uh, after a couple of years and um, issues to do with cognition and mind and brain. Um, and, uh, I tended to follow my nose. So I started teaching in one department at Washington university in St. Louis, which is a great place. And then went to Penn state to the medical school, um, where I taught in a sort of interdisciplinary program called the humanities department it was really sort of humanities disciplines and social science, social studies of medicine and healthcare, uh, some policy stuff. And then I also, taught in the graduate neuroscience program and um, toward the end there uh, spent some time in a lab at NIH at NIMH and um, I'd been interested in policy all along and um, you know, for various reasons uh, uh, decided to at the tender young age of 38 to make a jump so I went to law school and <laughs> Um, you know, uh, now it seems like a long time ago. Uh, law school got me back in, involved in law and economics, leading to antitrust. And uh, but the stuff in healthcare, you know, I'd spent a long time in academic medicine. I'm not never been a medical doctor, but academic medical institutions, and um, uh, that's always been in the background and a, a part of the focus of my work. But um, got back into. Uh, law and economics and connection with antitrust and competition, competition policy. And uh, that sort of led me to where I am now. I was teaching for a couple of years 
up in Maryland, and uh, this policy uh, position was open. I was looking to come back to Washington, and it seemed to be just the sort of uh, thing I was looking for. So, um, It kind of brought everything together, didn't it? It did indeed, um, and that's partly because of the nature of the FTC, but we could talk about that too. So now that you're at the FTC and you've 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 started to you know shift into more of the the federal trade stuff related to anti competition, um, what would you say overall your perspective that the Federal Trade Commission does? What's its role in government? Well, um, I think you know we're not a big agency, but we do play an important role. And, and first part of that, I think, is we're a, a rare agency that has both a consumer protection mission and a competition mission uh, in ways that are supposed to fit together. Um, and in fact, we have our two large enforcement bureaus are a Bureau of Consumer Protection and a Bureau of Competition. Bureau mm-hmm. of Competition enforces the antitrust laws. Uh, Bureau of Consumer Protection enforces quite a few laws, some of them sort of narrow, like the Fairness to Contact Lens Consumers Act, but also, you know, a broad sort of cross-sector um, provision, Section 5 of the FTC Act, part of which is a competition provision, but part of which is um, supposed to protect consumers against um, uh, misleading um, uh, and deceptive practices in commerce. Uh, so we are an enforcement agency. We've got these two enforcement bureaus, um, and then we've we've got a we've got a bureau of economics with about ninety PhD economists in it, and that serves the enforcement mission. But it's it's a little more. There's a wrinkle to it, which is that from the very beginning, the FTC wasn't just supposed to be an enforcement agency. It was supposed to be a sort of expert agency and a consultant to other policymakers, Congress, you know, other federal and state regulators and so on. And so the idea was that, you know, we have a statutory mission to study different markets, different kinds of commercial conduct, and to keep up with these, advise the commission, but also others on um, policies they might be considering. And so from the very beginning, we've had a, a research policy and education mission given to us and you know different parts of the agency play different roles in fulfilling those parts of the mission but um, the the link through economics and bureau economics i think is a, a key one because that provides not just an underpinning uh, for the law enforcement actions but for sort of understanding where we're going and uh, how uh, other kinds of policies might impact competition and consumers affect consumer welfare and so forth. Well, uh, the FTC so has a pretty broad role then. We do have a broad role. It is yeah. challenging. We have some very good people. And uh, we do, uh, I think we, we collectively get quite a lot done, but there, you know, there's always more to do. Uh, it's oh, a big yeah. economy, lots of stuff going on. And so in your legal practice, what sort of law were you particularly specializing in and what sort of cases, I mean, you know, have you had you done cases that you would generally would take on? What were the kind of things that you'd focus on? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I would even say that I ever uh, specialized all that much as a practitioner. So, you know, I got out a lot, by the time I took the bar exam, I was, or at least by the time I got my results, I was 41. 
Uh, I did spend a few years in a law firm, and I worked both uh, some in litigation and some in healthcare and FDA-related issues. And so the, the health and FDA stuff was sort of regulatory focus, but also it had to do with some things I've done at the FTC on uh, sort of federalism issues. Um, so, for instance, a body of law called preemption. When does uh, when does a federal law conflict with a state law? And if there's a conflict, when you know when does a federal law win, say, under the Supremacy Clause uh, of the Constitution. So um, I, I did a lot of that kind of work in conjunction with health and FDA-related matters because I had a little subject matter background to bring to bear there. But uh, those were sort of two areas, and it's one that's been uh, of interest to FTC, too, of course. Um, had some big cases in that area. But, um, you know, from my legal background to policy work was – I think in terms of a legal career, a relatively short path. So I've worked on cases at the FTC and this or that, consulting with this or that. Um, but I've, but I'm not somebody who spent, you know, 10 or 15 years in a litigation shop or a merger shop. I've been, um, you know, in, in policy since I came to the FTC. And a lot of my legal work has really been policy work informed by legal background as opposed to sort of lawyering on cases. And it all it all kind of dovetails. It does it sounds indeed. Like you know, your work with yeah, you work with the FDA really on states and federal law. It, it's exactly similar to what you're doing with the FTC. Yep. At least in some ways. Yep. What would you say then? The uh, with the FTC, what would the the role and and your involvement be generally with antitrust law? We talked a little bit about that uh, and policy. How it relates to competition issues in healthcare. I mean, healthcare is a very different kind of market. And so there can there there's issues of antitrust everywhere, but healthcare seems to be slightly different than some of the other cases I've read about. Well, it is different to some extent, but um you know, I like to think I mean, people say healthcare is different whenever antitrust comes up, and I I tend to say, well, everything's different. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's as different as it is, <laughs> and it's important to understand the ways in which it's different and how they do or don't affect a competition policy perspective or an antitrust law perspective. So one difference is um, sort of there's, there's uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, basic health and safety regulation in healthcare. It's not all just sorted out by the market. And, you know, some of these things are set out by, you know, authoritative uh, bodies. Uh, Congress or a state legislature says, look, this has to be this way. I mean, um, and um, uh, now we, we don't think those things should be free from consideration from a competition perspective, but it does, you know, sort of create an environment, you know, it does change the lay of the land. Another thing is simply, uh, there's quite a lot of, um, uh, you know, people talk about healthcare system in the United States. I don't know if it's a single system, but, um, <laughs> healthcare, uh, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of subsidy of federal and state programs in health care. And, some of these things are, uh, you know, 
direct provision of healthcare services, for instance, to the VA or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these uh, have to do with uh, funding, uh, either direct funding um, uh, or indirect through the tax system or something like that. And so there's a very complex sort of regulatory lay of the land um, in which we come to do uh, competition law and competition policy, um, but a lot of the same principles apply, right? So um, (laughs) it it turns out that, um, you know, when a relatively small hospital market uh, has two hospitals and they merge, we don't get magically special effects because they are hospitals as opposed to um, right. <laughs> uh, automobile plants. Now, still operates now, as a now business. Now we do, we do, of course. You know, the research that we do uh, internally and that we look at externally um, uh, is not just general economic research or analogous research for other industries and other kinds of uh, markets, but you know, was very frequently focused research. So, you know, part of our understanding of uh, hospital mergers comes from uh, uh, general economic literature, but also healthcare economic literature, studying hospital concentration, hospital mergers, and FTC economists have contributed to that literature, and FTC itself undertook sort of a, a big and very demanding project of hospital uh, merger retrospective analyses, looking back at mm. consummated mergers and uh, you know, what various models had predicted and how we'd looked at them before and how things had turned out and, um, you know, brought real scrutiny um, to um, not just um, hospital mergers, but hospital mergers that had been examined uh, before and dealt with before. And so, Right. It is special. We do want to know the special characteristics of an industry in question, whether it's, you know, hospitals or tennis balls and even, you know, whether it's, you know, hospitals or professional practice or hospitals versus um, uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, They all have their own special characteristics and it's important to understand them. But but these things don't necessarily create a world apart uh, just because they're health or just because they're important we're we're looking at these because they're important <laughs> um, not because they're unimportant but but that doesn't mean that uh, economics just goes out the window uh, or that competition concerns right. just go out the window they don't right it's not isolated exactly we talked a little bit about different portions of the FTC I mean we talked about I mean, just now we talked a lot about a research, the research arm. There's a ton of research happening there, the economic arm. How do those different sections work together uh, on these competition issues in healthcare? Is it a, like a you would just you have a big task force, or is it a how does that work? Well, well, sometimes we do. Uh, so, you know, we've had some big projects that have involved all parts of the agency, and others that involve many parts of the agency. Um, you know, so for instance, we had these uh, hearings on competition and consumer protection in the 21st century, 
2019, we're still working on uh, output for those. And um, there were many, you know, different bureaus and offices throughout the agency contributed to those. Um, sometimes we'll do a, a smaller project, sort of a small team from our office and maybe a couple of people from a Bureau of Economics or Bureau of Competition will do uh, a much more focused project. Um, whatever the sort of team we have, um, there's usually a process of weaving other perspectives in. So for instance, if we're doing a report or a policy paper, or an advocacy comment, um, I, I will, you know, typically maybe it's just me staffing it at the basic level, or maybe it's a couple people or three people, but, um, you know, an outline is shared, for instance, with the Bureau of Competition and the Bureau of Economics, and we have contacts there, and they'll maybe give us a little bit of input there, and then a draft is shared with them, and they'll uh, give us some input, and sort of, we try to get some consensus there before that goes up to the commission, um, and, um, uh, you know, the chairman's office, if it's coming out of my office, we go through the chairman's office, and uh, if the chairman wants to present it to the commission, whether it's an FTC report or a staff report or a staff document of some sort, um, there's a process by which the commission examines the work, asks questions, makes suggestions, raises objections, whatever. There's some back and forth, and then the actual thing that you see, that the public sees, um, in most cases, has been. Uh, voted uh, on by the commission. So the commission votes to authorize the issuance of an FTC report. And the commission also votes to authorize the issuance of um, something like a staff opinion or a staff policy paper. And that's that's the same whether it's um, on the enforcement side or the policy side or the research side. There's, there's um, you know, sometimes it's really it's collaborative analysis, from the right? ground up. You know, there's a big team working on something, people from across the agency, and sometimes, you know, we're just bouncing things off of people at different stages in development, but then it all goes through the commission. So there's a number of checks and balances along the road before the FTC comes out and says, the FTC says this, essentially. You bet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, uh... And then when you get some sort of a healthcare thing come in related to competition, who who would decide? How is that triage? Who would decide which cases you would bring and which advocacy might get advanced? There are several ways it can happen. There's not just one path. So for cases, I mean, for law enforcement cases, I, I suppose, well, there's the merger side where, I mean, this isn't true of all the cases, but a, a sort of a main um, uh, source is is just uh, a statutory uh, Hart Scott Rodino uh, uh, reporting. If there's a transaction of a certain size, it's got to mm. be reported to the antitrust agencies, um, the FTC and the Department of Justice. And then there's a process for deciding whose court the ball goes to. Uh, and um, so that sort of is how those things get on the table. And then there's sort of a preliminary look and a series of things that happen and deciding whether to pursue an investigation or to try to block or modify the merger or, or not. Um, and on the conduct side, things come in different ways. Sometimes we find them, sometimes they are reported to us 
by the public, and that can be consumers upset about something. That can be um, other kinds of stakeholders, including competitors, will complain about uh, competitor conduct. And, um, you know, sometimes there's more to it than others. And then we have a system for fielding those things, too. And, and then, in you know, like a lot of things in Washington, people who are involved in these processes get a, a sense of, at least some sense of who does what. And so, so some things might be brought to the attention of my office because we've dealt with them in the past or dealt with very similar things in the past, right? So, so some of the um, bills or regs having to do with nursing and nursing restrictions, well, um, uh, professions that have a stake in the game and their trade associations and academics who study these things, they have some sense of what we've done in the past and they might call our attention to these things. And then we have to have our own screening. Well, what, what can we find out about them? What do we make of this? Um, there's sort of a, an office level process of triage, you know, can we do something with this now? Uh, and should we, or, or not? And then, <laughs> uh, we sort of kick it upstairs to ask if there's interest in our pursuing it. And, uh, if so, then we do what we do. There's there's a time frame. Uh, what kind of materials can we gather? What kind of research can we do? Do we have a clear position on this? Um, can we get input from, say, the Bureau of Competition and Bureau of Economics? Is everyone uh, coming to agreement on what we would say? And um, if so, again, goes upstairs, see what the commission thinks. Can we get it on the docket in time? Uh, can they scrutinize it and give it a vote? Um, and um, there are a number of considerations, right? So uh, we don't, yeah. I mean, on the one hand, we don't just look for low-hanging fruit. We, we need challenges to make a difference. On the other hand, we want a possibility of making a difference. So um, if there's no time or there's something that has no hope of going anywhere, I mean, maybe those are strikes against it. Um, uh, if um, we don't, don't look for an easy win, but if there's some chance that either in this legislative session or the next one there'll be real progress, that's an extra incentive to weigh in and to try to uh, influence the process by providing our perspective and providing information that we have. Um as with any other organization, triage generally, I suppose there's just the issue of uh, what 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 do the floodgates look like? Um, how many how many people are uh, in the waiting room? How many people are being wheeled in? What looks the most pressing? What kind of bandwidth do you have? Um, sometimes um, something looks entirely worthwhile. You just can't staff it or you can't staff it in a timely way um we we do what we can we sometimes we scramble we double up but but um you know there are always limitations mm -hmm. as there are um as there are in any field 
I know that kind of dovetails into the next question. I know you guys have done uh, a lot of work, the FTC and you, you yourself, on uh, APRNs and state scope of practice bills. And particularly, um, you were a co-author on one of the FTC staff papers, which was called uh, Policy Perspectives, Competition and Regulation of Advanced Practice Nurses. Uh, and, and that has been a pretty big deal, I think, both at the state level, but also in, in the, commu- the healthcare community. What was the genesis of that document? What caused that caused you to put the effort and time in? In other words, triaged it up to be worth it to do and and staff. Well, I've been gratified by the attention that's gotten. I, I, um, um, I think it's you know I think it's a good piece of work. And I mean, I was an author, and, and Tara Kozlov was a, uh, an author too. Other other people helped. It, um, uh, the the um, and there's really sort of more, I mean, there's the general background that the FTC has issued various kinds of policy documents and advocacies and reports before. Um, the specific thing here is that um, kind of an idea that the office had dovetailed with some other thing I was doing. So as you noticed, we've been doing a string of these individual advocacies on, for instance, APR and scope of practice issues. And there's there's a long history to these at the FTC. It predates my coming to the FTC, although mm-hmm. I, I kind of got involved in reviving this set of advocacies and, and sort of developing a template um, or a framework with which to look at these problems. Um, and... Um, and when Andy Gavel was the director of the Office of Policy Planning, he and Tara noticed that we we had done a bunch of these, but also that we got a lot of requests and we couldn't always deal with all the requests in a timely fashion. And so one idea that they had was, gee, maybe we could distill our thinking across the series of advocacy comments that we've already done and looking at new research that's come out and First of all, maybe this would help shore up and refine our thinking for future um, advocacies, but also maybe it could be a kind of a uh, a way to educate the public and to educate the commission, you know, as the commission changes and from issue to issue about how we think about these things. And, and not only that, but just looking back at the triage problem, maybe this can be a tool that we can use when we just can't uh, respond to all the worthwhile requests for comments, right? So some given state has a proposal and they want us to weigh in and we say, look, you know, we'd like to look at particular issues in your state. Are there primary care shortages? Where are they? Are there other kinds of shortages? Are there provider concentration issues, workforce issues? We can't do that in two weeks, um, and we've got a bunch of requests here. Um, when we look at your request, when we look at your bill, we see these three or four issues. Maybe this policy paper that we've done can be a useful resource for you to think about them and, and the kinds of recommendations that we've made in the past. Well, when Andy and Tara were pitching the idea we might do one of these things with the apparent scope of practice issues, I said, you know, um, I met this um, person, a a scholar at the University of Pennsylvania named uh, Julie Fairman, who worked on the Institute of Medicine uh, Future of Nursing report. And 
it just so happens that she and I have been working on a paper together on uh, <laughs> uh, competition policy and NHS perspective on uh, nursing restrictions. And one of the things it does is it looks across a range of FTC advocacies and what are they and what do they do? And, you know, the paper is only about two thirds done and it's not doing everything we want this policy paper to do. And it is doing some other thing, but you know, there's a whole lot over here, lap here. Uh, why don't I see if I can make good use of, of what I'm already working on, continue the project with Professor Fairman, but also sort of develop uh, a version of it to, to, to work as this policy paper. And they gave me the nod and, and getting from A to B took a little more work than I would have estimated or uh, <laughs> and a little more time than, than one would have hoped. But we got there and uh, Tara was helpful and, and we, we had other people pitching in from, from Bureau of Economics and from here and there we had uh, some good inputs too. And so we were able to get the thing together. We were able to get support from the commission, sort of very good, strong support for um, publishing the thing. And it's been gratifying to see that it's been useful and it's been useful in the States. And, you know, it was cited by the VA um, mm -hmm. in their economic report and in their rulemaking when they uh, um, adopted and sort of national uh, independent practice scope for, for most APRNs. Um, so that's, um, I mean, that's a bit of a complicated story, but there's sort of those two strands and, and that's how they almost serendipitous came together. <laughs> yep. Yep. Have you guys seen or heard back, uh, you know, from a significant amount of people about impact in the marketplace, that particular policy paper has had, because it's talked about constantly. So I would assume that, you know, you've definitely seen some benefits. We've, we have, and you know, these things are hard to measure exactly because there are a lot of, mm -hmm. uh, so, so there's the impact that it has on people's thinking that you don't see, right. Whether it's, Right. Um, whether it's a board of medicine, a board of nursing, or a hospital, uh, a lot of this is is hard for us to see. Um, and then there's the question: what sort of difference it makes um, in uh, regulatory decisions or statutory decisions when a bill is up before a legislature? And whenever we issue the comments, we do we have in different ways tried to survey. Um, uh, lawmakers, for instance, um, uh, were, you know, were they aware of our comments, read them, what effect did the comments have? Sometimes they're independent indicators, independent reports that the comments were effective. And, um, you know, the simple fact of the matter is that we don't always get what we recommend. We don't always get what we want to. Uh, <laughs> and when we do get it, sometimes you know, it takes a good long while. And so I would cite Florida right. as a, as a state where there were some, uh, to my mind, uh, real improvements made, uh, in Florida law within the past year. Um, uh, and, Absolutely. um, you know, this, and this is really quite a few years after we, uh, provided our first set of comments on this issue. Uh, to the Florida legislature. Um, but um, interested parties keep pushing and circumstances change. And so other people get interested and we try to keep our hand in it. And um, so 
sometimes you don't get what you want right away, but you get a lot of it in time. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes you'll just get a citation. So, for instance, um, when the VA changed its rules about uh, APRNs, um, not CRNAs, but other categories of APRNs, um, they, when they published their final rule in the Federal Register, they, they talked about our input and, uh, and so on. And so you have some indicators like that. Now, I mean, maybe it's a little bit analogous to medicine where there's a lot going on. You can't always uh, uh, identify with clarity the exact contribution that one uh, right. a, a piece of the puzzle made. But, but we, we do try to track... Uh, what happens to our advocacies, what, um, uh, what impact they have. And um, we have found, um, uh, in many cases, we've, we've gotten good results or we've helped other people get good results. Um, not always, not right away, but, but in, in, in many cases. So that's been gratifying. I mean, you know, I mean, it's... Um, not working and it opens their it opens people's eyes that otherwise might not have thought this way i think you know i mean i've read the whole thing i i keep a copy of it and so i think you you know i think like you said it, it's a perfect example of something that may be happening in the background that you might never hear that it influenced people but it really changed minds and that could happen in legislative you know in legislators offices or you know when they have caucus or they're having discussions about a particular bill or stance they're going to take and then they say well this is the FTC stance and it's pretty comprehensive and people look at it and get convinced that oh that does make sense i think that's a powerful impact the work that you guys did on that paper well thank you and look i think most of us want to make a difference so you know i've worked on a lot of healthcare issues i'm keenly aware of the fact that I am not an APR myself. I'm not a medical doctor myself. <laughs> I'm not saving lives in any immediate fashion. Um, and, um, um, you know, th- that work is tremendously important and, and very immediate, right? So if I get sick mm-hmm. because of the pandemic or because of some other issue, I don't want people to rush me to see a policy analyst. That wouldn't help me, uh, um, but 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 these but I, but we're in it because these laws and regulations really do affect um, not just who gets to do what under what circumstances, but from our competition perspective, we see these as the provision of services, provision of important services mm-hmm. and goods to people and and we we have a consumer welfare standard and we're we're keenly interested in the impact on consumers right so can right. healthcare consumers in the end patients for instance get to healthcare when they need it is there someone there to deliver the service is the service affordable uh, things like this really make a difference we like it's, it's important to us that this kind of work uh, can make a difference and can be helpful. And I, I, I believe it does, even if it's not, you know, sort of front line stuff. So that's, um, right. that's, that's really a motivation here. Well, I think that the fact that you're not a physician or an APRN is much more of a strength than anything else, because ultimately you're a third party individual with no particular side to be on looking at it from a neutral perspective about 
cost effectiveness, access to care. And what does anyone want in healthcare? They want uh, quality, cost effective care. They want access to it close to home. I mean, that's ultimately what people want. And so you're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, can the consumer get what they need and is it affordable and accessible? And you, you don't have a, a dog in the fight. I think that's a strength, which, you know, then, then empowers policy papers like this. It's not like, you know, an APRN wrote it or a physician wrote it and they took, of course, their, their trade organization side, which is, would be commonplace. I think that, I think that really is a strength of, of yourself, the other co-authors, but also the FTC in these matters. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, I think generally sort of uh, we hope that people see this. I mean, in law enforcement, too, uh, we are not um, litigating on behalf of companies where we work or where we own stock. In effect, you know, we've Mm -hmm. got sort of a whole bunch of regulations about uh, uh, where our investments, such as they are, uh, might go and, you know, being recused from things and so on. But but. Um, uh, even more than that, you know, once you're in court, you want to win, but on the policy side and on the research side, really, we hope that we have credibility as a neutral party. So, um, I'm I'm not, if, if I seem to be advocating for APRNs, it's not because I'm an APRN. I'm I'm not, I'm not, there's no money in it for me. Um, and and likewise, (laughs) if it's, you know, doctors, um, it's not, I'm not a medical doctor. There's no money in it there. And I've got no beef with doctors. My best friend from college is a doctor. Uh, uh, lots of friends are doctors. was very happy uh, to, to have physician colleagues um, at Penn State and at NIH. Um, um, and my, it turns out my doctor is a doctor. Uh, so um, um, it's it's not. Right. We are, in that sense, a neutral party. It's not our livelihood that's at stake with the better policy change. Uh, we don't own stock in anything. We bring to bear sort of, and, and moreover, it's not just our own professional bailiwick and, you know, that can lend expertise, but it can also lend biases. Um, it's, mm-hmm. we bring what we have to bear. And I think on the policy side, you know, people talk about the federal government dictating this or that. On the policy side, very often we are not speaking from a position of power, but from a position of information and influence. So if I write, you know, with assistance of others and the blessing of the FTC uh, to a state saying, gee, this bill looks like a really good idea for the following reasons or, or it doesn't, um, it's, it's not, guess what the FTC is bringing you to court, it's this is what we've learned. This is how we think about it. This is what we think you should consider. Walls in your court. It's your decision. Um, and I think that right. too, I, I hope lens, you know, I mean, it's in some sense, it's, it's weaker. It's not, we're not holding power over them. On the other hand, it, it does mean that, that we are a sort of a neutral party and I hope people would respect what we have to offer. Well, I think that's exactly the role. And I know um, last year the FTC issued a couple of comments uh, regarding proposals in Ohio and Kansas that were related to expanding the scope of practice of APRNs. Uh, can can you provide any insight into those comments, why they made it to your roster? Um, sure. I guess, um, I mean, in some sense, it's a little bit of the same old story. These are uh, questions about the possibility of, 
independent practice, or at least a pathway to independent practice for some APRNs. Um, I mean, in one case, it's focused on independent prescribing, but of course, you can't really practice independently if you can't prescribe medicines. Um, right. And um, and so um, these are familiar issues to us. I mean, part of it is just serendipity. New legislative sessions, a couple of proposals uh, in these two states that seem to have some support and some traction, and we were able to budget some time, and there was um, a thought that maybe writing new detailed statements in these states could help move things forward. I will say that we sort of got jammed up on timing a little bit uh, in Florida, but we did some informal work trying to help them and sort of providing them with past work and the policy paper that we talked about and so on. And uh, people right. said that was appreciated. So, so this was sort of an opportunity to look at some changes on the ground and some proposals that might get somewhere in these states and um, make use of a little bit of new research we were doing, but also all of the work that we've done in the past and um, hope to move things forward. Now, um, uh, obviously, we, you know, state legislatures have had their hands full uh, in the last couple months or so. So it really has not been business as usual. Um, but, um, you know, we are hoping to keep up with these issues and, and hoping to continue to make progress, you know, state by state when we can. Uh, these, these look like good opportunities. We were able to budget the time. That's sort of uh, how that works. Um, so got those out early in the year. And um, uh, plainly, we're hoping to do more when the opportunity, when the time is right. And yeah, I can, I can see that it becomes a time crunch, especially, you know, you're one agency for the whole country. And I'm sure there's a lot of requests. I know another request had come in in December, and uh, it was the FTC issued a comment on the Texas Medical Board and its proposed rule to add supervision requirements to CRNAs. What I do, uh, what sort of insight can you provide? Can you provide into that particular comment and and uh, what they required? Well, that was a very interesting one to me. Um, so, so one issue is just sort of CRNAs, as as you know, it's just one of sort of. I mean, there are a bunch of different categories of APRNs, but CRNA is one of the main category certified registered nurse anesthetists and um and you can say it <laughs> it is an interesting i can even say it uh i even personally know some crna uh so so um so one interesting thing here is that um you know neither anesthesiologists nor crnas are a hundred percent procedure based but but there are, you know, certain procedures they specialize in um, that have been very well studied. So arguments about sort of like different quality of care or bad outcomes, uh, I think were really very straightforwardly undermined by the data here. A lot of good data showing that for a range of uh, things that CRNAs do, both in states where they don't have to be supervised and in states where they do have to be supervised, um, 
they have very good outcomes. In many ways, outcomes very hard to distinguish, if at all, uh, from physician outcomes. So, you know, general anesthesia for uh, surgery being a big mm-hmm. one, not the only one. There's a lot of good data here, uh, a lot of good data from Medicare Medicaid databases, but also from other places. And so uh, we can have some confidence about that. And then there have been also been some interesting studies on the question, well, what kind of difference does it make when you change the law, the state law about supervision, yeah. say, to lift this law? And then there it turns out that, I mean, among other things, I mean, nothing bad happens to people, but you do free up a little bit, uh, both for the CRNAs, but also for institutional healthcare providers uh, to use the CRNAs and improve access to healthcare. And this is something that's been very um, clear in some advocacies where we've had hospitals and physicians advocating for our position coming to us, for instance. You know, we had one in Missouri where you know, a big hospital center in Kansas City said, look, we have, you know, best practices, guidelines, oversight from a committee here at our big academic medical center. We also have these two uh, more far-flung rural hospitals where people need surgeries, people need pain treatment, <laughs> other things, and the number of anesthesiologists in those counties is, is zero. And so it's not that Right. It's not that the medical profession has no input into what goes on there. It's that we know from our own experience and our own data that these CRNAs are providing excellent quality services. There's back and forth between them and us. uh, And moreover, there's just no way we can replace them. And so, um, you know, Texas was striking because there were there were dozens of critical access hospitals located in counties where there were zero mm-hmm. anesthesiologists. So if you make it, so, so if you, I mean, now if CRNAs are not providing good care, that's right. a problem, but there's no evidence of problem there. Uh, if you make it so that um, you can't um, uh, provide these services without supervision and maybe without more immediate supervision, um, then you might be mandating that a number of critical access hospitals either close or close their ORs or really, you know, in a very large state with some big distances to cross, you could really deprive people of some very, very important access to health care. And this was also interesting because, I mean, the board seemed to be trying to do, I mean, this is sort of legalistic, kind of an end run around the state law. The state law didn't require supervision. The state law was pretty distinctive in Texas. It was was a delegation law. Now, in some sense, it's maybe more onerous because you need a lot more acts of delegation. On the other hand, it's much uh, more flexible because these acts of delegation, you know, can be done by a qualified physician um, appropriate to the context. And so, for instance, at one of these critical access hospitals, uh, the surgeon could delegate to a CRNA um, uh, the anesthesia responsibilities for a patient. Well, if the board through regulation comes in and says, you know, if the, that delegation has to come with adequate supervision and 
the delegating physician needs to know that this is that this person knows what he or she is doing and knows that it's appropriate to this context and have the expertise to do that, then all of a sudden you call into question whether the surgeon can make that delegation. So, right. um, so, and, and, and there's a threat of liability, right? No, uh, to hear that word. And, and, and no one wants to hear that word. And docs certainly at critical access hospitals don't want to hear that word. And, um, and neither do the CRNAs. And so, um, it's sort of, that was interesting to me because it was an attempt to sort of do by regulation something the statutes didn't require at all. And in fact, you know, the attorney general of the state of Texas had made it very clear that the statutes didn't require this at all. Uh, and so, you know, we looked at this and saw this as unnecessary, as something that was not, I mean, we're not experts in the health and safety standards, but we're, we're good enough at looking at the arguments and the evidence to say, look, nobody's even made a credible case. There's a safety issue here. Uh, what, what we could see was the competition impact, uh, the way this would affect the supply of professionals and supply of professional services, uh, especially in some of these uh, highly concentrated um, markets where, you know, you have one institutional provider, you have no other professionals to step in. Um, I mean, it looked like the kind of thing that could really, really do a lot of harm. And so um, that was the motivation for for waiting in and there. Do you and the FTC get a lot of pushback from their trade organizations like about this sort of thing? Yeah, you know, I mean, it does vary. Um, and, um, you know, of course, people have their own views and they have the right to the views and they have, you know, petitioning rights mm-hmm. uh, guaranteed by, under the Constitution. And uh, we've heard different uh, things, sometimes more and sometimes less, uh, uh, from different trade associations. But, um, yeah, there have been times when, uh, for instance, anesthesiologists, um, organizations have, um, either written to us or asked for a meeting to express their views or, you know, written to people on the Hill to express their views. And, um, we've, we've heard disagreement. Uh, we're certainly open to disagreement and sort of open to evidence that we've gotten things wrong, but our basic position on sort of these scope of practice issues, um, hasn't moved because we haven't seen the evidence that, that we've, we've gotten it wrong. The evidence so, hasn't changed. Uh, we've continued to study it. Yeah, we've continued to study it. Uh, we've had, uh, FTC economists and others continue to study, and we just haven't, uh, seen the the healthcare information or the economics information to 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 change our views on it. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty common um, a pretty common look at how this is this all plays out. I mean, I understand you know if you're on one side as a trade or, trade organization, your your entire job is to protect your members and their interests. I, I get that totally. On the other hand, you know, evidence trumps belief. And so ultimately we have to fall down the path of what's the evidence showing. And, and I, I think that the FTC has done a really good job in, in doing exactly that. Well, thank you. One other thing 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's done a great job. I mean, it's, it's totally focused on the evidence. Well, I mean, to me, uh, the thing that's of most concern is uh, exclusionary conduct, which sort of drives APRNs from certain services markets or for competition and provision of certain services, um, where there is, on the one hand, you know, no other business rationale besides, gee, we'll do better if there's less competition. That's right. Uh, and B, where there's no sort of real regulatory rationale for it, right? There's no right demonstrated um, uh, risk mitigation or health issue. or um, And so, you know, those would be kinds of things that we're on the lookout for uh, because, I mean, in the end, we talk about provision of services. We're talking about uh, who can get healthcare where and under what conditions and at what price. And, um, you know, I think uh, we've had some provider shortages for a long time in the U.S. of different kinds, and uh, these have real effects on people. And I think, in some sense, the pandemic has really sharpened our sense of these, like something happens. And I think so. Very quickly, we're at capacity and then beyond it. And then, like, what do we do? Who can do this? And I mean, it has been interesting. Quite a few states have sort of relaxed a number of the restrictions on an emergency basis. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's, I mean, maybe that makes good sense, but maybe it's also an opportunity to think about when things quiet down, when we're less desperate. Think about what we, what restrictions we really needed to begin with and what, what were just there, vestigial, as it were, from past practices. Right. I mean, that, that's, uh, that, that's the, that's the time to look at it and say, okay, we came across, we came into this pandemic major issue. Notice we had a whole lot of shortfalls in our system, varying types, made a decision to mitigate some of those shortfalls. It worked, you know, retrospectively, you look back and say it worked. Um, you know, there, there weren't all kinds of people having bad outcomes because we made these determinations. So moving forward, if it was, if it was good during the pandemic with the sickest people, then why wouldn't it be good moving forward in your state with the typical everyday medical practice? Right. Adding access, right? Sure. And take a good hard look at at what these practitioners did and were able to do under very stressful conditions. What does that tell you? Uh, And um, now what about next year when maybe we don't have this challenge, but, you know, we have rural communities, even in the state with some very sophisticated medical resources, like, you know, to go back to the Texas issue, you know, if you look at the best uh, tertiary care centers, teaching hospitals in the state of Texas, best medical practices, best, I mean, you have some very, very sophisticated healthcare in the state and some very good healthcare resources, um, facilities, doctors, nurses, other kinds of professionals. Um, but it's a big, big state, right? And so, right. well, Huge. what about what about underserved communities in some of these cities? 
What about underserved areas where people just don't have access to the resources? Who can do what? What have we learned about who can do what effectively, efficiently, cost-effectively? Right. And then that, of course, then begs the question, if, for example, I'll use myself as an example, if I've, as a CRNA in a rural area, I am good enough to manage all the cases that come through the door for anesthesia, why would that not be the case in an urban area to continue to expand access to care? We don't have a two-tiered system. So if it's just as good in one place, outcomes are the same, why wouldn't it be just as good somewhere else? Of course. And I mean, so one, well, I mean, one comeback to that is, look, you know, desperate times, desperate measures. We relax these things um, because we really, really needed care. So we weren't going to ask careful questions about exactly how good it was because it was going to be better than nothing. All right, step back and say, now it's not so desperate. By the way, when it's not so desperate, was there any difference in quality you can point to? Were mm-hmm. you really adopting a desperate measure or were you just doing something you should have done all along because the quality was there, the skills were there and they weren't delivered because there was a restriction. But in point of fact, it could be in the rural center. It could be in the urban center. It's there's no, the people are the same. The biology of the people is consistent. Um, It doesn't change at the County line. Um, and in fact, it doesn't tend to change at the state line either. Um, you know, it's interesting, both medical school and nursing school, you know, they have, you know, uniform certification standards on, you know, what counts as medical school, what counts as nursing school, uh, what are the board exams, et cetera, across the United States. And in medicine, you know, they have, they also have an organization that harmonizes with Canada, um, so mm-hmm. why? Because guess what? It's the same species everywhere you go. Um, um, but the regulations are not consistent. The regulations and the statutes change at every state border. Well, do they change in ways that reflect real differences in priorities, or do they just change in sort of haphazard and uh, political ways? And I think that's what we need to keep asking ourselves. Right, exactly. You don't, you don't want things to change because it's a trade protectionist agenda. You want things to change because it's better for people. Exactly. And, and not to take sides between what we, the side that we take, like sometimes we side, seem to be siding with APRNs, but other times maybe with doctors, other times maybe with different kinds of entities. Ultimately, the test for us is consumers. It's, it's not that we don't mm-hmm. care about doctors and nurses and dentists. They're all people. And in some ways, they may themselves be consumers. But, but the test in the end for us are the consumers. And so ultimately the end consumer with a lot of healthcare services, that's patients. Like we're going to look at the impact on patients. Well, so what, what final piece of advice would you give then to listeners who think they might face some sort of anti-competitive regulation in their state? What should they do? What, what should they be looking for to think it is as opposed to just like sending you an email well, I mean, I think one thing is that we are an open book and we have resources like that policy paper that sort of set out our thinking about some of these things. And there's also, for, on the enforcement side, there's a, a healthcare competition page that's you know publicly accessible also. So there's a lot of information about how we look at these things, uh, both from an enforcement perspective and from a policy perspective. And so, you know, getting to our webpage takes some time. 
uh, for people to read these things, but otherwise it's free. Um, and then I think, um, <coughs> look, individuals can report things to us. Individuals can litigate, but oftentimes it's good to consult with your associations. Do they know anything about this? Are they doing anything about this? Can you, uh, can you benefit from their views? Can you have input into their views? And they may know how to contact us as well. And they may know when it's more likely to work and when it isn't. Um, I mean, in the end, sometimes, you know, people have to, if they, if they think there's a case, they have to hire counsel. Someone has to, uh, get antitrust counsel. If, if, if we have, you know, a, a strong complaint and, it looks like a real complaint to us and we have ways to pursue that. But, um, you know, there's also a state attorney general's office may have an antitrust, uh, division or an antitrust office or specialists who, who might be interested in something. I mean, that, that, uh, can work in the private situation. Sometimes that AG does or doesn't have a responsibility to defend a regulatory board. So that kind of thing can vary. Um, and sometimes have people have to uh, pursue their own expertise. But I think that, um, you know, people can find, for instance, on our website, you know, the advocacy set out quite a lot of our policy position and give you a pretty good indication of things we've gone for. I mean, the cases are harder, but there are um, there is guidance on a competition page and the Bureau of Competition. Uh, there, there is information about different cases. And so. You know, we hope that people individually through our resources and then maybe through their representatives, through their trade associations, um, and, and through their, their public representatives, their, their, their state legislators, their federal legislators and others, they can, you know, they can find some guidance about how to bring issues to the fore. They can find some allies with a complaint and, uh, maybe with a particular complaint about a particular course of conduct, maybe maybe that will be us. Maybe we can take that up, or or maybe maybe someone else can. But we're in the information age, right? I mean, at this point, it's it's so easy. It's it's not necessarily easy, but <clears throat> there is information out there, and there are tools out there. Uh, and so uh, um, one would one would hope that. Um, that they that people could have hope that there are that there are things that can be done and there's progress that can be made. And this information is more accessible than it has ever been in history. It's right it's, there. It is. You know, the APRM papers right there. It's it, it's accessible to the public at any time or legislators or your association, whatever. It's uh it's available. And so, you know, right there on the web page. No, no, and it's you know, we don't charge for any of this stuff. So <laughs> take it, print it, we'll do it to do what you will. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for coming on. This has been really interesting. The, the I think trade restriction stuff and just how this works at a federal to state level is very complicated. And uh, you know, there's a there's a role uh, for the FTC there to make sure that people have access to whatever particular service it is in a fair, equitable way. And uh, you guys have done an amazing job. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate that, and I hope we can continue to do good work. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 
You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 